Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and this week we're going to do a special episode on software supply chain attacks. Earlier this year, we published our annual Internet Security Threat Report, or ISTR for short. The ISTR is the biggest publication we produce every year. It's a deep dive into all of the data we have available to us from across the company, and we use it to give a broad outline of what happened in the cybersecurity world during the previous year and point to some emerging issues that may feature in the coming year. Now, one of the most significant trends we noticed when putting together this year's ISTR was a major increase in the number of software supply chain attacks. These attacks are quite specialized, and as a result, they're fairly rare. Prior to 2017, we'd see about an average of four supply chain attacks every year. However, in 2017, the number of supply chain attacks suddenly jumped, averaging more than one a month. That's more than a 200% increase. Not only that, but some of the software supply chain attacks reported in 2017 were on an unprecedented scale, and they affected hundreds of thousands of users. So what's going on here? Why the sudden increase in software supply chain attacks? In order to find out more, I spoke to some of the semantic threat researchers who've been investigating these attacks. First of all, I talked to Candid West, who was our main author on this year's ISTR. Before delving further into the topic, Candid first of all explained what a software supply chain attack is. So when we talk about software supply chain attacks, we actually mean that uh, someone is inserting a Trojan horse or malware into an otherwise legitimate software package. So that, of course, could be done wherever it's compiled at the distribution place or wherever it's stored so that whoever is downloading this update will actually get the update, but also the malicious part. And the emphasis here is on the software supply chain, as, of course, there are other supply chain attacks that we've seen in the past. Um, There's been a few cases where people have stolen passwords or accessed VPN networks from some suppliers who still had access to the corporate network that the attackers were aiming for. So those are supply chain attacks as well. But here we, of course, talk about the software supply chain attacks. As Candid explained, a software supply chain attack is a very specific kind of supply chain attack. Nevertheless, within that, there's lots of different ways a software supply chain attack can be performed. The main differences lie in just how the attackers get the trojanized software onto the target's computer. Here's Candid again, explaining some of the more common types of software supply chain attack we've seen. It's wherever the software package is hosted on a third-party site. So it could be for a lot of smaller packages, they might be hosted on GitHub. And it could be that an employee has a password they use for updating the software packages. And it could be that they use the same password on other accounts as well. And we all know that with so many data breaches, there is a chance that this password has actually leaked and someone else might have access to update the software package on GitHub. We've seen with other cases where it might be a a previous employee, so an insider threat could be another one, where someone has access and they just want to do um, some, let's say, chaos and update it. They might sell it to someone else to have a backdoor implanted, and they're using their legitimate access because it was not revoked after they got fired from the job. So we see there's different types of it, but the result in all of those are actually the same. Whoever's downloading an update will not just get the legitimate software package, but also a malicious Trojan horse inside. All of these attack methods have existed for some time, which begs the question, why was there a marked increase in software supply chain attacks in 2017? What changed? 
Why were more attackers suddenly so interested in them? It's a question Candid had to ask himself when writing up his findings in this year's ISTR. I think one of the reasons why we've seen such an increase is, of course, because it works. And it's very difficult to detect for a user. I mean, we're talking about a software supply chain attack where it might be downloaded from the official original domain. It might have a valid digital certificate. You're actually expecting a software package to be downloaded because you hit the button for checking updates or you're actually downloading it manually yourself. So a lot of the things actually add up and it's very difficult for the user to notice anything fishy till it's too late, till they have to start it. So of course the attackers love it because that means it plays into their hands, right? On the other hand, it also got more and more difficult to find exploitable vulnerabilities, which they can use reliably to actually infiltrate uh, some uh, organizations. And therefore, going through supply chain might be one of the easy ways to still get into well-guarded targets. If you had any doubts about how effective a software supply chain attack could be, there were several examples last year where they were used to devastating effect. A lot of the time, supply chain attacks are used to perform targeted attacks, where a limited number of selected targets are infected. However, during 2017, there were two cases where attacks were mounted on a scale that we hadn't really seen before, with hundreds of thousands of computers affected. The first was Pecha, or not Pecha, as it was also known. Coming only a month after the WannaCry ransomware outbreak, Pecha was one of the most disruptive and most talked about malware outbreaks during 2017. What a lot of people don't know is that Petcher originated from a software supply chain attack. Gavin O'Gorman was one of the threat researchers who worked on Petcher. The Petcher attack, I think, was, was a particularly interesting one and it was very serious at the time because I think it was on, uh, it was on the day of a holiday in Ukraine and then word started to go around that there was some sort of major attack happening uh, in Ukraine. So the first place that we tend to look when these sorts of attacks happen is that we'll have a look at the various, you know, industry email lists and research groups and so on and see, is this something real? Is this actually a, you know, a genuine attack? Or is it just something maybe that's been kind of pushed in the, in the media and may not actually be particularly relevant? And so in this case, there was uh, the initial reports were that this was a, a ransomware attack that was spreading very quickly uh, in machines in Ukraine. The other interesting aspect about the, the malware was uh, it appeared to be ransomware. So it would attempt to overwrite the master boot record on the uh, targeted machine and then attempt to encrypt the, the local file system. However, on later analysis, it was discovered that, in fact, the encryption process was one way only. You could not decrypt the data. So it actually calling it a, a ransomware attack is, is uh, an in, inaccurate description. This really was a uh, out-and-out sabotage of, of machines. And it began to spread very rapidly uh, across uh, machines within the victim organizations and outside some of those initial uh, targets as well. And the reason it spread so effectively was it was twofold. So the first one, first reason was that the um, 
Eternal Blue exploit had been used, so the same exploit that was used by uh, WannaCry and was allegedly uh, leaked from the NSA. This uh, exploit is a very uh, effective technique at spreading across unpatched Windows networks. But that wasn't the only uh, technique that was used. Uh, the malware would also use a password dumping tool called Mimikatz. So when the malware was installed on the victim machine, it would first attempt to run the Eternal Blue exploit to spread. If that failed, uh, so for example, if semantic endpoint protection was detected on the machine, they wouldn't even attempt to try and perform the um, Eternal Blue exploit. Instead, they would drop a effectively a password dumping tool retrieve all passwords from the local system and then attempt to use those passwords to install itself onto other machines on the network. And what was quite intelligent about the way it spread across the network is that it would not just blindly scan for all of the IP addresses on the local network, it would take a list of all of the IP addresses that the uh, victim computer had connected to. So, for example, let's say a particular person is logged onto their machine on the network. They're browsing uh, websites, internal tools, for example, within that uh, organization. Those IP addresses and those uh, computer names will all be logged within the uh, machine. And the Petya software will find those and then attempt to connect to those using the same credentials that have stolen off the machine. So quite a, quite a smart way to uh, spread within the local network. And by doing that, and by connecting to uh, VPN uh, devices, so a lot of the organizations in uh, Ukraine may have been connected to or may have been offices of uh, international organizations, uh, and the international organization networks may all be connected by distributed VPNs across the internet. And so this was how Petia managed to essentially jump from Ukraine out onto other organizations uh, across the world, which may not have been the original uh, intended target. As Gavin explained, the reason Petya spread so quickly was that it was self-propagating malware. Like WannaCry, it was capable of copying itself to other computers. However, the malware had to come from somewhere. There had to be an original infection. As researchers hunted for this patient zero, they uncovered something very interesting. There was some confusion as to how it was spreading. Initial reports were that it was coming through email. Uh, these were later uh, debunked. Uh, so this is kind of an example of the type of uh, misinformation that you get uh, around these types of attacks, where you really need to be very careful with the uh, information you're getting, that you verify all of your facts, that we can go and look at our own data and our own telemetry and confirm or deny what uh, may in fact be going on. So as I say, the initial reports were that this was through uh, email. Uh, later on, uh, some individuals on a particular security research list provided some very useful information. They indicated that a server on their network had been compromised. This is a server not based in Ukraine. And the only software running on that particular machine was software called uh, MeDoc, so a Ukrainian uh, software accounting package. 
And this was the very, very first early indicator that we were aware of that pointed at how this this malware may have gotten uh, onto the network. So the use of the MeDoc software uh, as the vector, that was kind of the the initial assessment uh, after that kind of uh, false flag on the email. And what seemed to have happened was that a legitimate update service that the MeDoc application uses. So again, MeDoc is a is accounting software that's used in Ukraine. And in fact, I believe it's required to be used in the Ukraine. I think it was actually some sort of mandatory software that the government uh, required particular um, organizations to use. So it's very widespread and uh, a legitimate update mechanism for this software had been hijacked. So somebody had gained access to the MeDoc uh, developers network, uploaded their own malware, and then this malware, which became known as Petia or not Petia in a few other different terms, had then been installed on uh, victim computers. Given that Petia was such a virulent strain of malware, it wouldn't have taken much effort to release it into the wild. All the attackers would have needed was to do was to infect a small number of computers and to let Petya do its own thing and spread further. So why did the Petya attackers go to the trouble of using a software supply chain attack as the initial infection vector when there were lots more other straightforward alternatives? According to Gavin, the answer lies in the software they chose to compromise, or more accurately, who used that software. So given that this MeDoc software is kind of required tool, a required tool within uh, Ukrainian uh, companies, as far as I'm aware, I think it's very clear that this was a, you know, an attack intended to target uh, Ukrainian organizations. Uh, and in fact, the MeDoc company had been compromised for quite some period of time and a number of attacks had already been uh, performed by this particular uh, actor uh, prior to the uh, Petty attack in, in late June. So the company, according to uh, investigations by some other security companies, particularly uh, Cisco and ESET, they had identified that the uh, MeDoc server the one that was hosting the updates, had been compromised, uh, I think, in April as well. And so they had seen malware deployed using the same update mechanism in uh, April, May and June. So clearly the attacker uh, knew and understood the, the MEDOC system. They knew exactly the nature of the customers of that particular organization. And they had tested, they had tested how to deploy their malware, how effective it would be. And I think it it goes to show that it was a very well-planned attack specifically against Ukraine. It was not a case that this was just a random server that somebody had compromised and so was utilizing it to perform an attack simply because they had access to it. They went after that server, they tested it, they discovered any issues or bugs with their system and then managed to get it all working quite well. So a very focused uh, and planned attack against Ukraine. Petya was a software supply chain attack that reached an unprecedented scale. And at the time, you could have been forgiven for thinking that this was the exception to the rule. But within months, another supply chain attack was uncovered whose scale dwarfed even Petya. In this case, the software compromised was C-Cleaner. 
So CCleaner is a tool that um, is uh, produced by uh, Avast, a uh, anti-virus uh, company. Uh, it's initially it was owned by a company called Periform, and then Avast bought the uh, tool. And sometime in September of uh, 2017, Cisco came out with a blog where they had identified that uh, updates for CCleaner had been trojanized. That is, uh, again, similar to Petia, uh, an attacker had gotten access to the CCleaner development network and had modified updates to CCleaner to include malware. Uh, these malware updates were very, very tightly integrated into the actual CCleaner software. This is not a case that they, uh, for example, created a zip archive that contained malware and the CCleaner tool. And when you extracted it, you got one and then the other. Rather, the malware was uh, integrated into actual code that was used in CCleaner. So a very subtle way of merging malware that is unusual. Uh, it's not common to see that level of uh, integration of, of malware into a tool when something's been trojanized. And the reason you don't see it very often is because the uh, technique that this particular set of attackers used required them to have access to the source code. And it's very rare that attackers will have access to source code for these type of uh, tools. So the, the attack, as I said, was very widespread in that the updates for CCleaner were issued to uh, approximately 700,000 computers. These are the numbers that were later reported uh, by uh, Cisco and uh, Avast as well, I believe, where approximately 700,000 machines had the malicious updated version of CCleaner installed. This particular uh, uh, malware was a backdoor, so it would connect to a command control server and await uh, commands and it could perform the typical uh, basic functionality that you'll see in most backdoors such as download updates or run commands and so on. CCleaner was a supply chain attack on a scale we'd never seen before. There were at least 700,000 users who had downloaded the infected software and they now all had a backdoor on their computer. Were we witnessing the discovery of a vast spying campaign or was it something else? Further investigation revealed that the attack may not have been as indiscriminate as it first appeared. And so in, in later analysis of this uh, command and control server by uh, Cisco, they were able to identify a database that had been stored on the command and control server. And that database contained uh, a list of all of the infected computers and it also contained something else, something very interesting. It contained a secondary list of targets. So what would happen is that a computer would be infected by the trojanized CCleaner update and it would connect to the command and control server. It would upload some basic data about the uh, infected computer. So for example, the computer name, its IP address, maybe the network it's on and so on. 
and that data would be uploaded to the command and control server. The command and control server would inspect that data and if it matched a specific set of pre-configured targets, only then would a second stage malware be delivered to the victim computer. And from the analysis at the time, it seemed that this list was very small. There was approximately uh, 20 organizations that were configured to receive this second stage malware. Uh, So out of the 700,000 machines that were compromised, a very, very small number were the actual uh, targets of that particular uh, attack. So it's interesting because that's quite a brazen way, really, I think, to try and get access to victims to uh, effectively compromise a massive number of machines in order to uh, really target a very, very small uh, number. And some of those uh, uh, target organizations were listed uh, by Cisco. One of the uh, targets was Cisco themselves. Uh, A number of other uh, major uh, technology organizations were, were listed as well. And the second stage uh, malware, uh, this this uh, additional backdoor, was again functionally uh, a um, simply a backdoor that gave uh, additional access to uh, the attackers. And uh, I believe there was even a third stage malware that was then downloaded uh, by the second stage malware. Uh, The functionality of these particular uh, separate stages was not drastically uh, different, rather they simply used different uh, command and control servers, so it would have made it easier for attackers to control those second stage uh, victims. So I think think the CC cleaner or C cleaner attack is uh, Again, quite an quite an interesting one in that they gained access to a developer network. They understood the source code of the uh, tool they were trying to hijack. So that would have taken quite some time to read through the source code, uh, come up with a design for how they want to integrate their malware into that source code in such a way that it would be difficult for uh, AV companies to uh, identify it, and also even for developers of the uh, system to uh, identify it. So they would have had a very good understanding of uh, the internal processes of the company. How do they check in code? Uh, do they do code reviews? How is the software built? How is it signed? Uh, so again, this was a very well researched and planned out attack where they had clearly identified that the victims they were interested in were using this particular tool and that this would be an avenue they could use to get in and target those uh, victims. There was some later reporting from uh, Kaspersky and confirmed by uh, ourselves that the some of the code that was used in the, um, I believe the first stage malware was somewhat similar to code seen in malware used by the Hidden Links group, one of the tools used by the Hidden Links groups group. So there is a a potential link to that activity, uh, but we were unable to find any more firm uh, links to to, to kind of firm up that uh, conclusion. So it remains as uh, a speculation uh, really at the moment. The sea cleaner attack was quite unusual in that a huge number of people, around 700,000, were infected in order to get through to quite a small number of targets. 
with so many collateral victims, it begs the question, was this an effective attack? By infecting so many people, were the attackers increasing the risk of discovery? Gavin didn't think so. I think that their approach was actually a very, a very good approach because if you're a reverse engineer and you're analyzing software, there's a few, um, there's a few very obvious uh, ways of identifying malware. So for example, you receive a, uh, a tool, you don't know what it is, and when you begin reverse engineering it, you can see, for example, that the code is highly obfuscated. And in that case, maybe you don't know what the malware does, but you know it's malware. It's very obvious. Whereas it's very, very difficult to look at a what appears to be a clean tool and then identify malicious code in that tool. You can do it, but you it requires a great deal of work and it really requires you to know that there is in fact something bad in there that you need to find. And I think that's I think that the attackers in this case were quite unlucky actually to have been caught because the tool that they were, were using or the way they integrated their code and trojanized the CCleaner tool was very well done. The tool was signed, uh, which um, a lot of security products will use as a way to just verify that in fact this, this tool is legitimate. And I think if a reverse engineer was to look at that with a kind of rudimentary look, they would tend to assume that it is a clean, legitimate file because there would be no obviously obfuscated code and so on. And I think to be fair that Cisco did a very good job in identifying that this was a hijacked, uh, trojanized malware. Um, So... I think it probably was a very good approach by the attackers, and I think to some degree they were unlucky in in, in being caught by uh, Cisco and the uh, Trojan Trojanized code being uh, discovered. So from that point of view, I think it probably could have been uh, quite an effective uh, attack, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are similar attacks that have happened and have gone completely undetected, uh, possibly even now or in the past. The prospect of there being other, as yet, undiscovered software supply chain attacks out there does suggest that the recent upsurge of detected supply chain attacks may not be a flash in the pan. I talked again to Candid West and asked him if he thought that this upsurge in attacks was likely to continue this year. I definitely think that the trend of the software supply chain attacks will continue in 2018 as well. And probably also on different uh, areas, so not just for targeted attack groups, where it's the very complicated software package that is compromised just to get into those very secure facilities. Um, Probably a few cases where it's also used for cybercrime. We already seen a few browser extensions being hijacked to distribute coin miners. So that's another avenue where it's very simple uh, to get onto many machines if the attacker is actually able to compromise uh, one of the heavily used extension or plugins or something like this. So there's so many ways uh, that it can be used by the attackers that we think that it's definitely going to increase further for 2018 and probably 2019 as well, uh, as well as it's not so easy to defend against. And that's probably something that the attackers are playing against as well. If supply chain attacks are here to stay, organizations obviously need to ensure that they protect themselves. According to Candid, 
While supply chain attacks are difficult to detect, that doesn't mean you can't defend yourself. But of course, once it is executed, there are a few methods that you can apply to still detect it. For example, if you have a security software that's using advanced machine learning and behavior-based monitoring, then of course, the security software can actually watch for any attributes generated by the software package and then try to detect those, regardless if they're different to the old one or not, they will actually stick out if they want to do something malicious with it. And that's the point where the security software can stop it and block any further backdoor getting installed or information getting leaked and exfiltrated to some external website. Okay, that's about all we have time for this week. I hope you enjoyed this, our first in-depth edition of the podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. You can also follow us on Twitter at ThreatIntel or read our latest research on our blog, which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be discussing what's new in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.